Hey everybody, welcome to the Lex G Podcast. Today with a bit of a new movie review. I'm going to talk to you about Air, the Ben Affleck uh, directed movie about uh, Nike executives courting Michael Jordan, or more specifically his family and his mom here, played by Viola Davis, in 1984. Um, as they're trying to get, uh, you know, Nike's competing with Converse and Adidas, and they want Michael Jordan to be their new brand, and they, they come up with the Air Jordan shoe. It's the story of the making of Air Jordans and uh, trying to woo the Jordan family, and in doing so, uh, they they have to do the trick, I guess, um, where you don't really see Michael Jordan. And uh, I, I like this movie quite a bit, and I just wanted to riff about it because there were some things in it that amused me. And this maybe is one of them. Like, you can't... And the obvious argument is, you know, you can't have an actor playing Michael Jordan. He's one of the biggest stars, one of the biggest athletes ever. Everyone knows what he looks like. I sort of disagree with that only because we had winning time last year, and probably two of the best things about winning time were those two guys who played Magic and Kareem. But in that story, Magic and Kareem are the center of the story. This is the story of the executives of Phil Knight, played by Ben Affleck, who directed. Matt Damon here is playing Sonny Vaccaro or Sonny Vaccaro, uh, the sports agent at Nike who's you know obsessed with basketball and seizes on Michael Jordan amongst all these other guys who are coming out of college and they're flashier players and they're, you know, they're more obvious choices, but he's seizes on something about Michael Jordan that could be their new brand, could be the new face of face of Nike and like put them over the top and Nike we find out in 84 is kind of a distant third to Converse and Adidas and Adidas is kind of getting the the bigger athletes because they have the the you know the rappers and the run DMC and the jumpsuits and they were a very cool brand in this era and this movie is first and foremost a period piece with non-stop needle drops non-stop signifiers of what time you're in I don't think since Wedding Singer has there been something that depicted the 80s and this is I think what it was it was a Wedding Singer like 84 85 too but this is very specifically 84 and every shot of it man at at some point it just becomes comical like in, in the wedding singer a it was a comedy b it was kind of novel then because you're talking about 1998 and nostalgia takes a while to take hold and believe it or not like in the late 80s early 90s we didn't go around uh mooning over shit from 1983 our whole lives we kind of got on with it i try to convince people about this like we weren't still ar- at least i wasn't still arguing about star wars and thinking about mary lou retton and oh wasn't the last starfighter awesome i was busy like trying to be in college and uh get my life going you kind of moved on with things and then i think maybe every generation has this you get into your 30s or whatever and everyone's or maybe late 20s 30s especially 40s you start mooning over everything and it's one big nostalgia fest and now my night is like you know i get on youtube and i'm watching like winger videos that i didn't even like in 1987 but just just to like you think you're gonna somewhere and time yourself back like christopher reeve when he listens to the tape or whatever <laughs> to get himself into that painting of jane seymour you get come up with this idiotic idea that you can just you know will yourself back there you can surround yourself with those and i thought about this while watching air by the way i've gone on like three separate tangents i haven't wrapped up yet i am getting back to that michael jordan thing but um I was like, does Ben does Ben Affleck know that these needle drops are very pedestrian? Does he know we've seen, we've heard time after time in every commercial break for 10 years, and it was in Tully with Charlize Theron when she's singing along to it? And then I was like, and, and Night Ranger was in, the Sister Christian is in Boogie Nights. 
And I was like, does Ben Affleck know these are kind of square needle drops? Like, when Paul Thomas Anderson does this, he always unearths, like, the most amazing shit that you've never thought of or you haven't thought of in 20 years. Affleck's giving you, like, the basically the uh, Jack FM playlist. There isn't a single incidental moment in this movie where it's like, oh, look, there's a Walter Mondale poster. Remember that? Oh, no, it's the Where's the Beef commercial. And every guy in the office is playing uh, that little ColecoVision uh, portable football game that people used to have in the earth. It's like one after another after another. And I was like, maybe, like I was thinking, like, if I did this, it, was, it would be like pining for an earlier, simpler life. With Affleck, I think this really is like, when you're Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, do you have to be nostalgic about 1984? Like, your life has been perfect for 30 years why would you care about some year when you were 12 um you know every year is a new adventure where like one of them's off making jack ryan and one of them is jason Bourne for a few years and it's like your life is nothing but excitement and hot actresses and babes and models and shoots and million dollar paychecks what do you have to be nostalgic about let me make a movie about 1984 so that's why i was thinking like maybe that's why some of the the nostalgia signifiers hit me as kind of clunky in this or just a little bit overdone. The other thing I want to get back to, though, is Michael Jordan. You can't have him on screen because he's too big of a figure. It would overshadow the story of the, the guys. And as I was, this is sort of like in the realm of uh, social network, of Moneyball. And uh, maybe an incidental player on the Oakland A's was one thing in Moneyball. To but you can't have a guy doing a bad Michael Jordan. So to cover for it, though, they do what they did in the movie She Said. If any of you saw She Said last year, that was the Harvey Weinstein. Um, the the story about the New York Times journalists who were going to take him down, the two lady reporters, and in doing so, they have Weinstein on the periphery of the movie, and you only hear him on like on. Uh, on calls on what do you call them conference calls and you see the back of his head you see a little bald spot and kind of a tubby guy waddling into the office and it worked okay for that i think here it becomes just like like where's waldo i don't it becomes like is that a sleeve is that michael jordan's sleeve it becomes kind of creepy that he's the centerpiece of everything they're trying to woo everything they're putting together the year jordans they're talking about his great college moves and his great what he's going to do for the bulls and for the nba and he's going to go on to be a legend and he'll have a, he'll have ups and downs just his great speech with uh Matt Damon kind of has this moment where he does this speech about what his life is going to be like and how they're going to be there together. And you're just like, is that a sleeve? <laughs> it's like, is that a quarter? Is that a wrist in the corner? It becomes absurd. It's like you're watching, you know, you, I know intellectually why he's not in the frame, but it becomes just framed awkwardly. And, he, and usually Ben Affleck, I think, is a pretty great director, a pretty good director, solid at least for this kind of studio movie that is just, you know, my nickname for it is like, this is just white guy swagger. It's just white guys getting it done, which is ironic because it's a movie about basketball and the NBA and this famous African-American sports legend. And here in particular, his alpha mom, played by Viola Davis, who can read over the contract, read between the lines she goes in the room she's the smartest woman in the room she sizes up all these corporate sharks and she's gonna tell tell it like it is you know and yet there's still an element of this movie being mad mad damon being ben affleck 
well-meaning as they are, these guys are your ultimate, and I love Matt and Ben, as we had to collectively call them once upon a time, um, but they are your ultimate bozo Hollywood liberals who are always stepping in it. Whether, Like, I think of, like, when Affleck was on Bill Maher and that, was it Sam Smith, I think? Not not the singer, but, like, uh, the guy who's, like, a talking head, and he was talking about, um, and he was talking about Islam, and Affleck thought it was Islam, Islamophobic, and he starts sighing and harumphing and putting on this big display and rolling up his sleeves. And he never went, he never went back on Bill Maher after that. He used to go on Bill Maher a lot, kind of in the more. It seemed like maybe during the era he was married to Jennifer Garner, and it seemed in a way like he had political aspirations. He'd go on like he was a freaking Kennedy or something. He'd be wearing the blue shirt. He'd be he'd have the, you know that salt of the earth Democrat kind of thing, and he he'd have you know he was very well spoken and he was funny and he'd have quips and he had that head of dubious matted hair that he's had since two thousand three, and he was all whip smart and everything. And then he had that one where he got in that fight with that guy on Real Time, and then he never came back. And since then. Every every Ben Affleck uh, movie is like a whole cycle of like this is the one that you know it's like how many comebacks has he had? It's like you're back, dude. You've been back since at least Gone Baby Gone. Like everyone decided he's a great director. We all enjoyed the town. We liked Argo. They gave it an Oscar and everything. But every time he does the the promotional cycle, we got to hear about his life and about oh what relationship he's in now. He's become. I don't know. It's like it's almost a parade unto itself. Every time they wheel Affleck out, like he had that basketball coach movie, not what two three years ago, and when he was doing all the interviews for it, it was all about how he's in a better place now, and you don't have to worry about him with the drinking and gambling, and he's settled down, and he's making peace with his divorce. And I think at that point he was with one famous hot actress, and then after that he got back with Jennifer Lopez. But every time he does something, it's the biggest thing he's ever done. It's the biggest risk he's ever taken. He's doing it sober and, uh, you know, no, got it all together this time, and it's like, a, a hundred times over, we've got to hear this. Um, and then Damon, he had that thing with, like, where he ranted about the school teachers. He's had so many incidents where he kind of lectures to some degree, and he means so well. I think they both do. But they're just the epitome of, like, two privileged guys who are trying to say the right things. And then they step in it, like, when they were on that Project Greenlight, and they offended somebody, and... Even when they did, man, when they did The Last Duel, what was that a couple years ago, that Ridley Scott movie, which is really good, but they brought in uh, Nicole Holofcener, or however you say it. I hate, mis- I hate to actually mispronounce a name because I kind of pride myself on never getting it wrong. But, you know, I, the, I think she's the woman who made um, Enough Said. And they brought her on as the third voice in the screenplay because it was about sexual assault. And they thought, you know, have we need a, they at least are smart and cognizant enough to know something like we need a woman's voice in this we need a really smart female filmmaker to chime in on this and then they went out took her on the road on like Jimmy Fallon and stuff and talked all over her they're doing shtick while this like you know you know, luminary of American independent cinema is sitting there third on the couch getting talked over like like she's Zeppo Marx or something. Like, why they even bring her along? It was just sort of like another incident where they're just like, I don't... But anyway, to bring that back to air where I've gone 100 miles out of my way about this, it's like Matt and Ben play... Uh, sports guys. Matt and Ben get to 
act like they're part of the Michael Jordan legacy in some way. I know they're playing characters, but there's something about choosing to tell the story about like the the white executive who does it. I, I don't know. I don't like it doesn't it doesn't give me any pause watching it, but I can't. Maybe it's just cuz we're so overly familiar with our movie stars and with, you know, like I just did there five minutes on the history of Matt and Ben. Why do I care about anything beyond the movie itself or the, their acting or their directing? But because we, they bring this like sort of goofy, Hey, there's, those are our buddies from Boston kind of energy to it. It's, I don't know. It just seems like there's some slight play acting element of like, look at us hanging around talking about the black guys from the NBA in 1984 when we were 11, you know, just something, uh, seems like fantasy wish fulfillment. Like Matt Damon has this scene with Marlon Wayans who comes on and he's great, but it's like, you're watching it and you're like, that's kind of a strange, like Marlon Wayans otherwise doesn't want to hang out with you. Matt Damon's not dropping in for sex tuplets or, uh, you know, little man or something. But, uh, you know, it's just like, I don't, you would feel like they wouldn't deign to go do these, like Chris, a uh, money, a little cameo in Rush Hour 4 or something, but to kind of bring them in for some cred here. I don't know. As I've thought about it, I was like, what? why is Matt Damon hanging out with Marlon Wayans? Marlon Wayans is very good in it. He, he, he does this thing where, um, he gives, he, he implants an, an idea. And I'm sure this is taken from history and I'm not going to spoil the movie, but something, Affleck does a lot in his movies and he's very good like I said he's probably in a way sort of an heir apparent to like Eastwood or Redford as these smart movie star directors who make tasteful upscale smart movies I mean obviously Clint did a lot of programmers and action movies too but just Affleck kind of does that too because he can do the action stuff in the town or Argo or Live by Night but just very solid sort of mainstream slightly guys guy movies he's perfectly good for that I, I probably should have led with the Eastwood example more than Redford there but you know what I mean like the movie star turned director whose tastes are pretty impeccable uh, but one thing about Affleck's movies is like he definitely seems like a guy who's taken a lot of screenwriting classes or uh they're very, he's very beholden to a certain type of structure, ABC storytelling, one, two, three, and that classical, like, like little tips that they would tell you in a screenwriting class, like lay in something at the beginning that can pay off at the end. And when you think back and you remember, oh, wait, these were the not just the Goodwill hunting guys who wrote this when they were 24 or 23 or whatever, very precocious, but a, a screenplay that sort of hits all these notes in terms of classical storytelling. It almost seems that's why there were those awful rumors that maybe they had help ghostwriting it, which I've never believed. But the idea is like, it was so it's a very much a manufacturer. It's a beautiful movie, but it's like the screenplay is like, bam, one, two, three, and it hits so many notes so precisely. And then you remember they were the project Greenlight guys who could engineer these little indie movies and none of those, all those movies flop. All those seasons of project Greenlight were ridiculous. Unless you want to watch that Chris Moore guy explode. That guy was great. I wonder what happened to him, but, um, Something about that kind of storytelling when they did that season about uh, Battle of Shaker Heights, which is probably the least watched Project Greenlight and probably the worst movie of the ones that turned out from that thing. Um, well, the Pete Jones one too, the way they hammer on screenplay and these moments, there's something Project Greenlight in a way about even Affleck's best movies because there's always that like in, in like the Argo fuck yourself thing like it's this little like teehee thing that can they he can punch it up at various moments and it seems very screen written it doesn't seem like a wild man made this movie it seems like you have a screen which is you know smart movie making I mean anybody a lot of these guys like Cruz or Clooney have these instincts to know at what point audiences want what thing 
and maybe less so recently with Clooney, but there's a very smart way to go about this certain kind of like upscale middle brow kind of movie making and Affleck, I think it kind of belies like, like his, his, his actions good and his dialogue and everything is smart and fun and funny and alive. But sometimes you catch it, you catch it. And Marlon Wayans does this. He has this bit about Martin Luther King's speech. And there's a moment where Matt Damon's going to have to give turn on a dime because he's losing the room and something Marlon Wayans told him 80 minutes ago has to come back. And that's like, to me, that stuff is good if you can make it effortless, but sometimes it seems like screenwriting 101 project Greenlight. I went to a McKee seminar hosted by, you know, like the Brian Cox character in, uh, in adaptation or something. Sometimes that stuff just lays on a little heavy for me, but it's still very good. We're talking um, to go. Oh God, did I even see? I didn't do any story points about this. Cause I figure you kind of know what it's about. I talked about the, uh, the period details and we're in 84 and they've seized on Michael Jordan. And at first Affleck's kind of reluctant about this, but Damon and his little team there of, of uh, Jason Bateman, who's in this too, who's kind of got my dream hair in this. He's got a like a nice mullet, so we know it's 1985. Bateman was one of those guys who kind of had boring hair for a long time. He just kind of had that one haircut, that slightly spiky mat and everything for about 15 years. Um, so it's nice to see him loosen up the hair a little bit. Chris Tucker's in this too. He's very good. And I think there's one part where he's really good late in the movie where the Jordan family's in the room and it's almost imperceptible because I thought at first I thought, man, is Tucker overdoing this? And it's that his character's overdoing this sort of like glad handing bullshitter salesman thing. And there's a nice little like second there where Viola Davis, again, who's can read the room. She's great. Everything you can tell. She thinks he's laying it on a little thick and he adjusts it very subtly, and it's pretty good acting. I was pretty impressed with it. Uh, maybe it's a little on the nose, or maybe it's not as subtle as I think it is, but uh, the way he shifts and modulates it, it's an interesting take on these characters when you're in these kind of rooms with all these, you know, sharks and weasels and corporate guys, and to have someone come on just laying it on so thick, like he's overdoing an accent, he's talking about how he's, you know, people called him the reverend because he's churchy, and he's trying to, he's just trying so hard to suck up to them and then that scene is really good the way they just keep moving the they they keep like one guy starts to fumble a little bit and the next guy kind of takes it over um it's definitely an interesting movie to watch this isn't really my milieu i've never been a huge huge basketball fan um although i sort of i, mean, I like that winning time show too but the basketball is kind of a non-issue like i said this is very much like if if Moneyball is sort of like someone said in my feed. Moneyball is like watered down social network. This is like watered down Moneyball, and neither of them are like that high flying bird uh, where you're just on your own. It's just minutia for 90 minutes, and you have to keep up with it. But I, I thought that was a cool way to do it because um, I know something about being left on the outside. Like if you if you think of Tar last year. Tar, like, what do I know about classical music? Nothing. And you're sitting there listening to her speeches and her riffs for 15 minutes about this movement in classical music and uh, even, like, her talking to Mark Strong about her business meetings. On and on and on. And at first you're like, whoa, this is... 
it's kind of insular. This isn't my world. I don't know. And you're resistant to it. And then if you let yourself, not everybody can, that's not a very accessible movie for a lot of people, I wouldn't think. But if you let yourself get into it, it becomes hypnotic just trying to keep up with it. And sometimes there's something exciting about being left maybe a notch behind a movie that's a little smarter than you. And that's kind of what Tar High Flying Bird is. This is very much like easy... Um, and it makes it sound like I'm really down on it, but no, because it's very hard to do this stuff. But it is definitely keeping you, you know, mainstream. It's the kind of movie, if you go see it in Burbank, everyone, like a nice audience of seniors and 40-year-olds with their wives farting their 90-cent store, store bag popcorn are going to be laughing and rolling and whooping it up. And Chris Messina's in there is kind of a jerk who's uh, Michael Jordan's uh, agent. And he and Matt Damon fight on the phone, taking business calls, and it's... It seems exciting, and the audience was into it, gave it the big standing O at the end, and you get a nice soothing 80s tune every 30 seconds. Um, and Damon's name is, is is pronounced two different ways in the same movie. He comes out, he goes, hey, I'm Sonny Vaccaro, I'm a sports agent. And then 10 minutes later, Viola Davis is like, hey, Mr. Vaccaro. And I always thought, and that's like, you know... You didn't have a script supervisor on this big movie? It's not, It reminded me of, like, Over the Top, where Stallone is Lincoln Hawk or Lincoln Hawks, depending on the scene. But um, I went with Vaccaro. I like Vaccaro because, remember, there was Brenda Vaccaro? She was, like, a big actress uh, once upon a time. But she's known, whatever she was in, she is known only to me as the co-star of Zorro the Gay Blade, which I probably, I probably should have just done a, a pod on Zorro the Gay Blade. Remember this? It would come on HBO in like 83. You'd be home in the summer and be like, oh, and it's George uh, Hamilton is a mincing gay stereotype Zorro. Like there's two Zorros in the movie. There's, I believe there's real Zorro and then there's Don Diego de la Vega and he's flamboyant and he's mincing and flaming and wears outlandish costumes and Brenda Vaccaro is the leading lady in the movie. Um, I think about that movie a lot because I watched it when I was like nine or ten, and I think about today's the the kids today, if you will, and there's all these discussions about kids transitioning, kids gender issues and sexuality and stuff at a very early age, and that's very controversial. And all I could ever think about is like I was. 10 and I didn't know what gay meant like I didn't know like I just thought gay meant you were wacky because Don Diego Don Diego de la Vega came out and he was like zany he had a funny accent and he'd swoosh he had a little swoosh when he did his sword so I thought it meant you were a funny guy and like Steven Stucker in Airplane was around that time and he'd go we're having a sale at Penny's and I just thought it meant oh he's he'd be a fun guy to hang out with I didn't know I didn't understand really the, the epitome of this it came to a head uh, when Beverly Hills Cop came out, because Serge, or Serge, played by Bronson Pinchot, I mean, he's working at an art gallery, he's flamboyant and making cappuccinos and kind of hitting, obviously hitting on Eddie Murphy, like a lot of the signs are there in the text itself, but I just thought of many, he, he was just, I was like, he's just funny, that guy's crazy, what an off-the-wall oddball. And then in uh, French class in like ninth grade, <laughs> in like 86, 87, uh, 87 maybe, we I took French one and we all had to give ourselves christen ourselves with a new French name. We couldn't be our real name in class. We had to pick a French, a classic French name. And I was like, "Oh, Beverly Hills Cop, I'm gonna be Serge. I'm Serge. I'm." I made the whole class call me Serge the whole semester or Serge. And 
Uh, I didn't get it. Then everyone, you know, I was already catching eight ass kickings a day in suburban Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as the dork who likes movies and sucks at sports and comes in trying to win the class over with like, don't you hate the Steelers? How about that gym teacher? What an asshole. And just like everyone hating me already with the Coke bottle glasses and everything. Um... And I and then I was I called myself Serge from Beverly Hills Cop, not realizing that you know he was he was a gay character. I just thought he was a funny guy, and that didn't go over very well either. This that brings me back to Air is like my association with Air Jordans. The first year that those were out, my biggest bully was the first kid in our school to have those. It was just some kid who was like, "I hate you." When we get to gym class, I'm gonna kick your ass. And he would say it, and he wasn't lying, because I'd get to gym class, and he would kick my ass. Like, one time he put my face in a locker and slammed the door on the on my temples, and it did not feel good. And I was always bummed, because otherwise he seemed like kind of a cool kid. One day in uh, science class, he was holding court, telling everyone about The Shining, and that was like my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies, when I was 12 or whatever, and I was like, oh, I want to go talk to him about The Shining. And he was all in with Nike, man. I guess he was like a brand ambassador for the North Hills High School, because he had the original original air jordans this was like uh spring 85 i guess or was it 86 is the 85 86 school year so it was either late 85 86 he had the shoes he had this blue shirt that said nike and some days he'd wear a shirt he would wear uh, uh hard rock shirts because he played guitar and his shirt said rat and i was like oh this should be a cool dude you know and he just hated me so the dude would always kick my ass i find when i tell this story even as i'm telling you that you can tell there's a certain affection that shouldn't be there like with time and age like i've come around via some stockholm syndrome to root for my bullies I think I even did then. Like, like I just said there, like, even when I was in the moment and the guy's like, I'm going to kick your ass. Like, I didn't want to, I didn't really, like, want to have beef. I wanted to, like, be friends with the guys who were kicking my ass. And over time, I realized it's because I suddenly knew that they were probably in the right. Like, you got to meet people halfway. And as I've had a lot of time in life to, because I've had nothing else going on to reflect on, you know, having been bullied or having been kind of, you know, I didn't really fit in in Pittsburgh because I had grown up in uh, New England till I moved to Pittsburgh, so I wasn't that great at sports, and I would, you know, try to be, like, kind of a wise guy, and it would set them off, and then the beatings would begin, but I look back on it now, like, you know, it wouldn't have killed you to try and play football a little better, or maybe, like, not wear brown corduroy bell bottoms with, like, blue Velcro chalk shoes into 86, uh, and maybe, you know, get contact lenses a little early, you know, you start thinking of, as you get older, like, maybe the guy wasn't so bad because in the end all this stuff ends up being kind of harmless and i can think of it with some affection now i mean that's something any kid goes through but yeah that was the air jordans were that kid so i kind of hit those air jordans kicked me right in the balls one day because i tried to stand up for myself this was like yeah that 85 ish era a little after that this the era this movie's taking place in but very much the same sensibility do you remember this i'm just going all over now but like remember everyone wanted to be a ninja in like 84 there was that spate of ninja movies and like show kazugi and you know there's enter the ninja with franco nero which is just great it's incredible classic canon and franco nero and his buddy his buddy that franco nero just cucks the whole movie he just steals the guy's wife right in front of him and the guy's impotent and he's wishy-washy and he has a a really like badly dubbed voice and there's a part that's not so subtle i guess where franco nero's nerdy friend goes he walks into the village in manila and he goes let's have a cockfight and they and you think wait what and then they bring out literal roosters 
Um, and that guy's just a total douche. And Franco Nero kicks ass. And then Shokazugi is the bad ninja in that one. And Christopher George is my one of my favorite villains in all of movie history. <laughs> And that he has a lackey named Mr. Parker and Christopher George was this salami style seventies actor. He showed up in a lot of Italian, uh, zombie movies like city of, uh, was that City of the Living Dead? That's really good. Whatever it is, it's really good. He was in pieces, but um, and he was in real movies. He's in Midway, which cracks me up. He's one of the pilots at the end. And I, I was, I watched when I saw Midway. I was like, was Christopher George in the military at fifty-seven years old? But no, he was only in his thirties. He was in some John Wayne movies and stuff. And he, I'm sure he was a good actor, but he was very much a ham. And he's the, he's the, uh, the villain in in um, Enter the Ninja who wants to take over this Manila town and he has Mr. Parker's lackey and he goes well I want a ninja find me a ninja who believes in the old ways which is one of my favorite lines I was thinking find me a ninja who believes in the old ways and he just shouts endlessly Mr. Parker Mr. Parker Mr. Parker in this voice over and over and over and when he finally gets killed by Franco Nero at the end he does this very histrionic death rattle fall to the side and then gives like almost like a vaudeville level insouciant like throws his hands up as if there it goes <laughs> it's such a bad ending it's uh, enter the ninja is great but i didn't the one that i loved as a kid was uh show kazuki and revenge which shows the good guy and it has this rooftop fight um and he's fighting Braden, the villain. I didn't mean to spoil that, which maybe I just did. And the, he brings the literal paper mache dummy to the ninja fight at the end. Like they're they're on these this skyscraper in Salt Lake City, and it's beautiful. I think it's supposed to be passing for Los Angeles, but it's actually Salt Lake City. And this fight, ninja fight at the end, goes on so long at the end, and has this repetitive taiko drum music that if you've ever seen Revenge of the Ninja. Even if you saw Revenge of the Ninja in like 1984, it's still in your head that and it just goes and goes for like the last 20 minutes and they they're shooting flames at each other and one guy and they think they slice each other in half but haha it's just a paper mache mache dummy it's just a paper mache dummy ninja and at one point a hand comes out of a whirlpool and grabs Sho Kazuki's ankle and it's just a fake wooden hand it's like man how did you pack for this how'd you know you're gonna need the wooden hand man how'd you know and there's been various points in the lead-up where you see them climbing up the skyscraper they don't have like a whole uh bug out bag full of ninja shit it just sort of magically appears whatever they need whether if it's a flamethrower up their wrist or if it's the paper mache um god i should have <laughs> That's more fun than talking about air. I'm sorry. And then Ninja 3 is with Lucinda Dickey from Breaking. And God, is she hot. And she pours this grape juice on her neck for this meatball cop that she's uh, in the relationship. And um, yeah, she was something. I, I like that one too. But it's just more silly. Whereas Revenge is really... Oh, what I was getting at there is because of... See how excited I get talking about Shokazugi and Ninja stuff from 84. And then, do you remember this? Lee Van Cleef had a show on NBC that was just called The Master, and he was a white ninja. Lee Van Cleef, you know, from like for a few dollars more, who was like a 70-year-old white guy and uh, not really very athletic looking or anything. He's just an old guy, and he was a ninja with a mustache. 
And he trained in ninjutsu or whatever, and he's an apprentice on the show, played by uh, Tim Van Patten. And they go around in this tricked-out van, and then their their enemy is Shokazugi, who's the bad guy in The Master. But the one thing I remember about The Master, um, since because it's from 1984, hey, so it's sort of you know on topic for a podcast about air and all the. I, he should have shown The Master. He shows everything else in that damn opening, like Knight Rider and Clara Peller and all this stuff. Um, but the the master had a part where Lee Van Cleef, he's, you know, the white ninja, but he goes to a target. I don't know why he's on a target range. He's never in ninja outfit either. Sho Kazuki shows up in the actual outfit and, uh, Lee Van Cleef never has his hood, the, the headpiece on. Um, I think he does wear the black tights, but, uh, not very well. Anyway, he's just at a firing range for no reason. And they go, hey, take some t- take some target practice, old man. And he goes, bang, 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 bang. He shoots six shots, and they show the, one of those dummies, you know, the cardboard dummy you shoot at. And there's just one hole, and the guy goes, someone sneers and goes, <laughs> only one of them even hit the target. And Lee Van Cleef goes, no, they all went through the same hole. <laughs> Uh, I haven't seen it since 84, since it aired, but I've never forgotten that. I'll probably find it on Tubi and it'll be incredibly underwhelming or some Mandela effect or something. But uh, but that was the era. And I, because of The Master and I think Karate Kid, I started taking Taekwondo to fight back against the Air Jordan man. So it was like a big matchup one day that we were going to fight. So I gave him like one kick and trust me, I was like a white belt with... You, you know, you'd get like a white belt and then you were like the white belt with yellow stripe and then you were yellow belt with a blue stripe or whatever. And it was this complex system just to keep the fat kids of Pittsburgh <laughs> paying Master Kong. And then conveniently, every time like the check was due every other month or whatever, he'd come up to my mom and uh, not to do my Asian guy voice. This is going to be very bad. But he'd be like, he's so good. You know, keep him. You need to keep him in shape. He needs to be fit. He needs to be trimmed to fight the bullies. And so my mom would be like, well, he says you're good. And obviously I was horrible. I couldn't even lift up my leg. I could barely crack that stupid board. But I would go into school and go, you know, you don't want to mess with me anymore. I'm taking Taekwondo now. Anyway, I sucked at it. And despite my Taekwondo prowess of white belt with yellow stripe, I got my ass kicked by the Air Jordans. And those Air Jordans hitting me in the nuts uh, was the last I ever wanted to hear of them. And here we are 40 years later, and I got to review, <laughs> review this movie about them, starring my two favorite buddy, imaginary buddy actors and all all my funny guys like, you know, Wayans and Bateman and everything. And it is, it is a really good movie. I, the way it was put together. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like very mainstream, but it's accessible and it's, I don't know if it'll be some Oscar movie at the end of the year. I think it was just like a, a solid double or maybe a triple. If you're being generous, um, it won't be one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Maybe in some ways it's a little bit of a comeback directing wise. Cause the last thing he directed was, Affleck director was Live by Night, which I didn't mind that much. That also, hey, that had Chris Messina in it too. And Messina was his lackey in that. There was something weird about it, but I was thinking like, man, it must be nice to be Chris Messina. Like, then with that phone call every four years from Affleck has got to be like, just such a nice, like, oh, wait, I got a movie to do? Because otherwise I thought he was sort of like, you know, did a little indie here and there. He was mainly known as like part of the HBO Sunday night, 10 PM prestige lineup of 15 years ago, but he gets a nice phone call from his buddy, Ben. I don't, I don't know what connection they have, but he's very good in these movies. Very good in this. Um, you know, all the acting is, uh, yeah, there's I'm still thinking about Zorro the Gay Blade. Zorro the Gay Blade is, um, I'll go back to Zorro, but, uh, 1981, George Hamilton, not only, is that the first time I think, 
you know, probably, I mean, I didn't know what gay was, but I heard that word gay and, uh, you know, the, that character. But also, that might be the, that movie was my introduction to taxes. When I think of taxes, when it's tax season, so because you got to do your taxes, I always think of Zora the Gay Blade because the villain is played by Ron Liebman and he's the tax collector and he's very, uh, you know, histrionic kind of like hammy movie villain and he has these scales with like these beautiful gold pesos on him and he smacks a sword down and the pesos go flying and I saw this when I was 10 so I th- I didn't know what taxes were. What 10-year-old has a concept of taxes? So like <laughs> well into my teens, I thought taxes meant like you take out your gold coins and give them to give them to some Mexican guy with a scale. I didn't understand that it was something withheld from your check. I thought it was like gold coins. Anyway, uh, that's a story you didn't need to know, but um, that's my other recommendations. Or the Gay Blade and uh, that Ninja series with uh, Lee Van Cleef. I don't know how you get to that. uh, There's no segue here, but from like the Zorro, the taxes, it got me thinking the one thing that really I want to talk about that's awkward about um, Air is um, it's very worshipful of big brands and I'm not the kind of person who cares about this we do seem to be in this movie and TV especially moment where there's a lot of stuff about big time big scale capitalism fat cats and corporate sharks and raiders and true stories about you know every which product like you know there's obviously succession which I can't speak to because on TV which is a huge hit I can't speak to it because I don't watch it but I know in just the very recent we had that Amanda Seyfried show um, and we had We Crashed. Is that what it was called? The one about the We Work with uh, it, with um, Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway. Um, and people seem in general, and I know there's that they, we just had the Tetris movie. These things about like big deals and corporate and capitalism. And it definitely seems to be something, I don't know, when I would take, when I went to film school or they would have these pretend, you know, that's the basic tenet of film studies is like the movies of their moment sort of relate to what's going on socially, politically in that moment. And you can't help but think, and not to get highfalutin, but like maybe this is like a remnant of the Trump era where we were sort of obsessed with this larger than life figure who came from that world of big time, you know, big time shark from New York and everything. And now in the last few years, we have movies about every story of boardroom behind the scenes. Um, maybe I'm going out, you know, straight. We even had the, like a documentary. They had a docu-series about the, the Harrier jet commercial from Pepsi, which was a story I didn't even remember, but you got to hear about like the machinations at Pepsi to beat Coke. And that's not that far off from what this is with Nike competing with Adidas and Converse. And they mentioned Reebok and, um, you know, I think that if this movie would have been done by Soderbergh, would have been done by Fincher, maybe, you know, like social network, it would have been a little more ambivalent about it. And and there's something weird about that. I mean, maybe it's because it's coming out in this moment. Maybe it's because it's a very light movie. Maybe it's a movie that because it trades so heavily on 80s nostalgia. And oh, and by the way, not just like uh, the, the songs you've heard a million times, but like <laughs> then then Ben starts whipping out like scores you've heard a million, you know, like he does the Love on a Real Train from Tangerine Dream from Risky Business, which they repurposed already for Mr. Robot, but uh, and bits of the Firestarter score and what other one? I think maybe Miracle Mile. And he does the body double. It whips out the body body double telescope which would be novel except a tr- didn't a trailer do that like two or three years ago because i remember being like holy shit who would remember the body double telescope music by pino dinaggio but it's in here um and it's sort of fun but like i said that's a lot it's very overwhelming but it does it brings a certain comfort a certain reassurance to the movie you're watching your buddies your buddies are getting rich um 
you know, this is fun. Yay, Nike. And to the point where, you know, Phil Knight's a wacky guy. We keep hearing about how benevolent he is and his great uh, um, charitable donations. And at the end, we have to see a big shot of him with his big crusty feet in the lens of the real Phil Knight. I would always have to show you the real guy. And you're like, that doesn't look like Matt Damon. <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't, that, the guy looks like he eats a Damon steakhouse. It's not Matt Damon. Um, that's some bad comedy. Um, but we, it, it, it's like a glowing tribute in a way to Phil Knight. And I was like, should there be, especially coming, aren't you the two dudes who were talking about Howard Zinn? Aren't you the guys with the people's history of the uh, United States who were sort of, you know, you're always lefty on things and everything. And then for the movie, there's a few moments, a few moments that maybe we're supposed to be a little ambivalent about this. Maybe the way by seeing it through Viola Davis's eyes sometimes, what sharks these guys are, how there's a certain used car salesman charlatan thing that goes into this kind of a pitch but it's not really that pervasive it's not really that critical i just think like the social network was pretty ambiguous about what you know it was it had this world it actually actually if anything social network made those guys seem pretty horrible and moneyball you know it wasn't they were a little more benevolent in that movie, but here it's just sort of like you go get them, you go make them. And I'm watching it as a dumb white guy, the same dumb white guy who, when I see something, no matter what, there's a smart part of me that knows film and knows where these directors are coming from that knows that obviously Martin Scorsese is doing a critique in Wolf of Wall Street. There's also a dumb, dumb part of me that thinks, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to be partying on a yacht with Jonah Hill getting loaded and having orgies with hot chicks and banging Margot Robbie and doing quaaludes in my sports car. That movie's fun. Like Scarface is fun. Um, you know, there's always that criticism about those movies about the push pull of that, how much you can show before people start to lose sight of it's a critique. And at the last scene of Wolf of Wall Street, you get that genius shot of all those fucking rubes looking at Belfort but honestly almost until like I'm not a salesman type I couldn't sell anything that's sort of being a weasel being a you know a huckster I could never pull that off like those parts in Wolf of Wall Street and the cons they're pulling but I mean like one time my very first job when I got to Hollywood was I worked at a telemarketing like sweatshop on Hollywood and Vine and we had to sell AT&T long distance that's how long ago this this is like early 96 and I couldn't do it at all so we had like four days of training four days in the bullpen and they would make us listen to calls and they put some guy they had some guy they called the closer it was just they were so obviously doing a ripoff Glenn Gary Glenn theater like they knew like everyone there had seen it so they're trying to like wow us with insider jargon like he's a closer he's got some leads and they had this guy like he's gonna close and they put on this very obviously fake phone call and it was guys like ma'am can i interest you in some at&t and he just coaxed it every bit of the way too perfectly it was so clearly acting it was so clearly fake you know probably selling it to you know the other uh, voice was someone else who worked there but at the end this dork in front of me who looked like kevin meany you <laughs> I looked exactly like Kevin Meany. He turns around to me and he had this big pompadour of hair and he goes, that guy was phenomenal. <laughs> and I was like, no, that guy was full of shit. And they put us on the fifth day on the phones and I could not do it. I got like, I'm, they gave me my list of leads and I'm calling some bumpkin in Ohio to ask them about their phone bill. Can you go, to, can you get your phone bill? Are you happy with your service? And after like, maybe one, two aborted tries. I was hanging up on them. Like I would get scared. I didn't want to, I don't, I never liked the phone anyway, but I want to call somebody and bother them. I hadn't thought this through. I just knew that I was new in Hollywood and I needed something to make money. And by day five, I realized I can't cold call people and bother them. 
I couldn't just, you know, the people are at home and you're calling them and bothering them about their phone bill. I couldn't do it. So after, you know, a few, I, I figured out like I could mute it and I would hang up that we, I didn't, I had a little headset and I would just be there doing like a pantomime, basically not really calling. I would call the number, then hit disconnect and then pretend to do a phone call. So in the bullpen, in the pit with John C. McGinley and his Yankees, his, uh, Nixon chicks routine, I'm sitting there like, yeah, let me ask you about your phone bill. And I'm like doing all this overacting. And then I didn't realize they were listening in on the other end. They're monitoring everybody that called me and they're like, we realize you're not actually making any phone calls. You're talking to an empty line. And I was like, yeah, you got me. And some Russian kid brought me down to a boiler room. And in a tie-in here that's miraculous, somehow Tears for Fears, Everybody Who Wants to Rule the World, uh, was is not in air. I couldn't believe he didn't whip that out. It would have been the next most obvious song from that era. But that was playing on the speakers in this boiling room as this Russian kid like cut me a check. And he's like, good luck in Hollywood. You're going to need it. And which was very menacing. <laughs> it's quite an omen of things to come as I was cut loose from my telemarketing job on day five. But anyway, so point being, I couldn't be Sonny Vaccaro. I couldn't be Jordan Belfort. But to watch those guys work, you're in awe of them, at least in the, for the purposes of a movie. If you had to deal with them in real life, it would be horrible. But it looks cool and fun. And these are Matt and Ben, are two, like, Boston socialist lefty leading guys who are, you know, on the right side. I mean, not the right, politically right, but, like, the correct side of everything who, would, you know, do end up stepping in it, but always try to be, like, the savior in some way. And here's a movie that really doesn't have much critique of this, um, you know, if people are still arguing about whether Wolf of Wall Street or Scarface or Fight Club or whatever movie, you know, that, like I said, that that push and pull of endorsement versus depiction, uh, you know, and criticism um, here. There's kind of none. I mean, there's one part where Jason Bateman does this weird monologue that's very stilted, at least the way it starts. out, He's like, say, Sonny, have you heard the new Bruce Springsteen song? <laughs> born in the USA. I was listening to those lyrics because I thought they were about being positive, but they're actually kind of negative. I'm making this movie sound so fucking dumb, but uh, he does that, and it's a setup to do to, to to talk about how he's ambivalent about this life that he that they lead and, you know, these sales. But by the end of this movie, Ben's like fixating on some big ass, they got a Nike sign, the whole movie shot sort of it's it's like this neon. It looks like it's from like an Alan Rudolph Trouble in Mind VHS you know copy from Odyssey Video that you would have rented in 1993, and you, it it zooms in on the Nike sign, and then all the this guy went on to be the greatest agent ever. This guy went on to make a billion dollars. Uh, Phil Knight's so great he can give out two two billion in pocket chains. And I'm like, where's the where's the ambiguity about this? It's kind of weird coming from these guys. I don't mind it because I'm not like a super lefty. Like I don't I don't need to be beat over the head with how horrible rich people are at every moment of my life. But. I just thought, like, by the end of the movie, I was like, man, that was almost a, uh, I mean, it was, it was purely worshipful. <laughs> it is, in some ways, supposed to be about Michael Jordan, and we do get, you know, obviously he became Michael Jordan, of course, but uh, it's, without having him on screen, and with the rest of the movie being this, like, big reassurance factory of our old tunes and our old buddies, 
I come out of that of a movie like that, and I'm like, I'm gonna be rich someday too. And I'm 50 years old and fat and wearing a hoodie and I have a shitty beard, and I'm sitting there in row B at the Burbank 16 with a guy chomping popcorn, and this is my life at 50. And I'm sitting there like, still like, oh, this is wish fulfillment. I'm gonna live up. I'm gonna be like these guys. It's so exciting when they make deals, and that's like when I watch Shark Tank, and I think I'm gonna be Mark Cuban. You're not gonna be Mark Cuban someday, but it's the like the American ruse to keep you, you know, so in awe of stuff like this. It just, I, I don't know. I, when I got to the end, I was like, boy, that sure was fun. And I, it did give me a little bit of pause. Like, should it have been that unquestioning? Should it have been that? I love on Shark Tank, by the way. It, you know, it's so big on entrepreneurism and like becoming your own boss and everything. But I love that everyone who comes through the Shark Tank is like, well, I was a brain surgeon. I studied 20 years to be a, you know, to work in a kid's cancer ward. And I, I did it, but it's really a drag and I want to make headbands in my driveway. And everyone's cheering it on. Like, what about the kids in the ward, man? You know, you're going <laughs> to, I'm sure the guy who had brain surgery scheduled the next morning is like, is he's real happy for your bandana business there that uh going to invest in. But anyway, that's where I come out on air and it was fun. And I, by the way, I'm just like, critiquing i'm just goofing on it that's kind of my way of processing things but i did enjoy this very much i don't know that it's going to be some immortal classic you'll go see it or you'll watch it probably when it comes on amazon and think that was fine it was fun checking in with our pals but it's just i don't know that's where i wanted to end up with it just that it's funny that something like this that comes from two guys who are supposed to be somewhat critical of this kind of thing. It just, and the visual style, man, for, for 84, I guess, like I said, it reminded, it is supposed to, I guess, look like a faded VHS. And we have all the signifiers. We have all the scenes of like, Ooh, you know, this old school VCR and this and that. And, uh, I wouldn't have gone with that route. I thought the sheen, the drab sheen, uh, Maybe that is the criticism, you know, the built in sort of distance, I guess, by doing that drab sheen to present that time and the the distance of time and everything and to have it look a little washed out. But I would have gone full 1984 hot for teacher bachelor party uh, hard bodies sheen with this. Just go full hard bodies. Uh, Columbia Beach, uh, Craig Wasson, you know walking around the beach to, you know, the hard bodies and body double have the same sheen. I just realized that, but uh, that's probably it for another day. That's my review of air. I wanted to get on and do something for you. And I apologize if this one sounds like I'm talking into a Maxwell house can. I know my fridge went off in the deep background earlier and that's going to come out on the mic. And by the way, to go back to one thing I did want to clear up, I think I had said, you know, Ben Affleck did not, and Damon did not write this screenplay. It's I know this because there was an insufferable tweet about like what geniuses, what benevolent gods they are, that the guy who really did write it, they did all these tweaks and turned it into a Matt and Ben movie and gave it the Project Greenlight... Uh, um, Goodwill Hunting kind of the panache, the polish, I guess, if you will. But they still, they still gave the original screenwriter full credit. And I love screenwriting. Twitter passes all those things around. Like that's gonna be me someday. And it's just like me. You know, if it's ridiculous, me sitting there watching Wolf of Wall Street, thinking I'm going to get Margot Robbie someday and watching this and thinking I'm going to be Phil Knight someday. Screenwriting Twitter is not that far off with their idea that they're going to be Matt and Ben. And someday these great directors are going to, you know, give them their sole credit and they're going to make the, the their, you know, illusory 250000 for for their, for their brilliant screenplay that they've been working on for 36 years. Anyway, I don't want to goof on anybody's uh, dreams because, like I said, this movie made me realize my 
mine are kind of dumb enough, but for two hours, I got to play act and pretend I was Matt and Ben and Chris and Jason, and maybe someday I'll get rich too. You know, nice relaxing time for me. And I, you know, I'm making fun of the needle drops. But now I'm realizing I like knowing all the tunes in the movie. He's not springing any deep cuts on you. You know, sometimes, like, I was kind of talking about Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson whipping out, you know, Can or some of those songs from uh, Licorice Pizza last year. Sometimes it cracks me up about Paul Thomas Anderson is like my age. Why does he know all this shit from 1973? Like, I don't go around as the world's foremost authority on 1970. Somebody tell you how it was in 76. I was busy being three. I was. I had my eyes on a big wheel and my uh, tricycle or my training wheels. And somehow this dude at age three knew all about, you know, 70s Groover rock and the porn scene and the San Fernando. I mean, it is when you're a showbiz kid, I guess you're extra precocious and you hang around with, you know, luminaries of show business. But that does just crack me up. It's all. Did I do that? in another? Maybe I did that in another podcast or maybe I forgot. He was the authority, man. He was only three and a half year old writing a dissertation on Robert Altman and Floyd Mutrix and telling you telling you about nineteen seventy four and and that you know the the haze and the, the you know the valley and the you know it's just like man why doesn't Paul Thomas Anderson ever make a movie about like CNC Music Factory or some shit that was actually popular when he was eighteen and it's just like his frame of there's not many guys whose frame of reference stops dead when they turn nine but I think he might be one of them anyway Paul Thomas Anderson's great that's for another day Paul Thomas Anderson's great Ben Affleck is very good as a director but this is. A little on the nose sometimes, but I think you know most people enjoy it, and I hope you enjoyed the review. I know maybe this is something I'd like to do a little more of, and just check in with some new movie movie reviews uh, here and there when I get a chance. If I do, when I can, and it was fun talking to you. Okay, have a good day. Bye.